As always, Bobby did a great job with the children's message, and I want to thank her for introducing our new sermon series. Uh, we're going to be starting a series today on the Holy Spirit, we're calling it the Echoes of the Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about why we call it that in just a moment, but as Bobby said, the Spirit is invisible. It's unseen. And in many ways, that can make it hard because being unseen and invisible, like me, when something's out. What do we say? Out of sight, out of mind, right? And it can be that way with the Holy Spirit. That, and it depends on the tradition you're raised in. Some of you may have grown up in a church where talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. Or like me, grew up in churches where we mentioned the Holy Ghost at the end of singing the doxology. There was a little line about the Holy Spirit in the Apostles' Creed. And that was about it. And then once a year, we'd have Pentecost Sunday where we'd celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'd say, oh yeah, Holy Spirit. And then we'd have 51 other Sundays and the Holy Spirit would go. But I want us to recover a little bit of that. Our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, talks about one of its six key affirmations is a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. President of the ECC, John Wenrick, talks about the Holy Spirit as the blazing center of what we do. And so I want us to help to help us recover some of what that blazing center is. Who is the Holy Spirit? We're calling it echoes of the Holy Spirit, and we think of echoes as something, it's not the original, but we hear it back, because I want to explore the Holy Spirit, not from the day of Pentecost and forward, as we often think of it, but the Holy Spirit is revealed in what we call our Old Testament. Where do we see echoes of the Spirit? Where do we see the Spirit at work? What do we learn about the Spirit? And one of the things I really want us to think about, too, is not just walk away from this series with some new knowledge and some new ideas. Because that's easy to do. Sometimes we believe that we can be changed and transformed with simply some new ideas and new thinking. And that's one of the things that hopefully we learn over time is just knowing things doesn't change you. And so our hope is that as we learn this, that we'll also be changed. And so want to think about ways that we can practice and live into this and not simply know the Spirit in terms of a doctrine, but to know it in our hearts and to be changed by this transformation with who the Holy Spirit is. And so we begin our study of the Holy Spirit where everything begins, at the beginning. If you've been listening to me for the last couple of years, you know that one of my sayings that I often talk about is, if you want to practice good theology, you have to go back to Genesis 1. You have to go back to the beginning. And so that's where we're going to go back to, is back to the very beginning, the very first words to page one of the Bible to Genesis chapter one. So Genesis one begins with this image. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's this giant, big picture. If you're imagining filming a movie, there's this wide screen shot. And God created the heavens and the earth. And that's simply a way of saying, God created everything. All that is seen and unseen, God creates everything. And then what happens in verse 2 is we take this wide shot of the universe, of the billions and billions of galaxies, of the stars flowing across all of creation, and we zoom in on one little spot, this place we call earth. In verse 2, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God 
was hovering over the water. So now the earth was formless and empty. Anyone else have a, if you've got a Bible, anybody else have a different translation there? Something different? That's kind of the, the common translation, for, formless and empty, but we're going to learn a little bit of, so the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, and so we're going to learn a couple of Hebrew words today. So you're getting a little bit of a little language lesson. And this next one is actually a little phrase, and it's a fun one to say, and that's kind of like why I like learning it. And so this word, these words translated formless and empty here in our English Bibles, in Hebrew is tohu wavohu. All right, tohu wavohu. Can you say that with me? So tohu wavohu. Tohu wavohu. And it's just, it's kind of fun to say, isn't it? I mean, it, it is, it, it's kind of this sing-songy, and, and so even reading this in Hebrew, there's this lyric, there's this language. It's not truly poetry, but there's this lyric, you get a sense of the writer having fun with the language. And I think of it kind of like words we use in English, which kind of like topsy-turvy, or even Stephen. There's this, and part of it's written because of the way it sounds, and they go together, tohu wavohu. And formless and empty, maybe not... Maybe we would say it's unproductive and lifeless. In other words, the earth is there, but there's no life there. And it's also unproductive. It's, form- it's not doing what it's designed to do yet. It's the raw material that's sitting there. It, it's there, but there's a sense where it's supposed to be, something else is supposed to be there. It's, there's no life, and it doesn't have a function. It doesn't have a purpose yet. So the earth is formless and empty. It's tohu wavohu. And darkness is over the surface of the deep. So you get the sense that there's darkness and there's deep waters. Well, what does darkness do? It it hides things, right? In the deep water. And so there's this sense where there's something hidden there and we don't know what's going on yet. We're waiting in, in expectation. And we're waiting in expectation because it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here's Hebrew. So we've learned tohu wavohu, which is formless and empty, unproductive and lifeless. Next word we're going to learn is the Hebrew word translated here as spirit. And for this one, you've got to learn in Hebrew, they have a, a consonant called hech, which you've got, to, you've got to cough, you've got to choke it a little bit in the back of your throat. And so this word is ruach. So can you say ruach? So ruach, so what does ruach mean? And, and okay, I'm going to get into one of my little side bunny trails here, rabbit trails. The, uh, we often sometimes, you'll hear pastors or teachers say something like this, like what the word in Hebrew literally means is, and I want to suggest to you, if they start saying that, just ignore what they're saying because that's not how languages work. And so, so what I'm going to give you an example of, if, if I say to you, I want you to put this Bible in the trunk, and now you're going to translate the trunk into a foreign language, what did I literally say? I literally said the trunk, right? Well, the trunk could mean what? Could mean a car. It could mean a chest that sits at the end of your bed. It could mean a hole in a trunk in a tree outside, right? Could mean the trunk of somebody... To, Trunk is a word. A word has meaning only in context. A dictionary gives you a range of meanings. You have to read in the context. So this word, this Hebrew word, which we say ruach, can mean wind. It can mean spirit. 
It can mean breath. It has all these different meanings. And so we can't literally say, well, literally it says the spirit. Well, we could say literally it says the wind. It doesn't. It doesn't. You have to look and see what's going on here. But this word has this range of meanings, these different ways. And so we're paying attention to what it's doing. And sometimes it carries all those different things. And so if you were to read in a Hebrew Bible, if you were to take out what we call a concordance, where you can search, you can look and say, okay. And even if you don't know Hebrew, you can get concordances, whether it's an electronic one or I've got a giant one that sits on my shelf. And you can say, where are all the other places this Hebrew word ruach appears? Well, sometimes it's used for wind. Sometimes it means spirit. Sometimes it means breath. It has all these different meanings. But one of the things we know about each one of those meanings is that it's something unseen, but it has powerful effects. Each one of those is there. And so, but we also learn that when the Spirit of God is there, when it talks about the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God moving, that there's a sense of anticipation that something is about to happen. Wherever the Spirit of God is there, when it's used in that kind of language, when it's designated by being the Ruach Elohim, the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, it says there's something about to happen. And so we're here, and there's this sense of anticipation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the earth is empty and lifeless, purposeless, without form, without function. But, and there's darkness, and there's deep water, but the Spirit is hovering. And would you picture not a helicopter just kind of sitting there, but a, but a bird. And if you're like me, have you ever gone to the beach or to the lake or or maybe just sat in your yard and you've watched a bird just soaring in the sky. And they're just riding on the wind currents up and down. And that's this picture of the Spirit is there kind of soaring around the earth, riding on the winds up in the darkness. But there's a sense of anticipation, a sense that something is about to happen. Because wherever the Spirit of God shows up, wherever the Ruach Elohim shows up, something happens. There's an expectation that something is about to happen, that God is about to do something amazing. And guess what? Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And remember what one of the other meanings of Ruach is? It's breath. And so the spirit, the wind, the breath of God is hovering over the earth. And the next thing that happens is what? God speaks. And when God speaks things happen. There's light. There's a separation. That water that covers the earth is pulled away and the land is exposed. And then the land is populated with trees and then with animals and ultimately with human beings. And so in this verse here, we see the spirit hovering over and we get this sense of anticipation. So the first thing I want us to think about when we think about the spirit is that where the Spirit is at work in creation, it brings life. We oftentimes in communion here at uh, Fruitland Covenant Church, during course of communion, we recite a creed, a statement of our beliefs we call the Apostles' Creed. There's another creed, an ancient creed, that's called the Nicene Creed, which was written around the same time. It's a much longer one. But one of the phrases in the Nicene Creed is it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And so we see here in Genesis chapter 1, page 1, that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. 
We see it too even in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host, what? By the breath of his mouth. Where the spirit is, there is life. There is new things happening. There is creation happening. But the spirit doesn't simply create life. The spirit sustains life. How long can you live without breath? Not very long. It's one of the key elements of what it means to be alive. And it's the same is true of the Spirit. That without the Spirit, we cannot live. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Okay, I've got that one here. Yeah. Then the Lord God formed the man, formed a man, formed the, the human being from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. In other words, the spirit is what brings life and in this phrasing of even the breath of life and living being isn't unique to people. It's used to describe the animals earlier on in Genesis chapter 1 and it's used in, later on in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 to describe the human being. So what makes human beings unique is being created in the image of God. But all creatures have the breath of life in them. And so there's this sense where we are imbued, where the, God takes this dust of the earth and, and breathes the breath of life and gives the breath of life. But when that breath is taken away, we can't live. So Job chapter 34, it says, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. In other words, with, while the Spirit not only initiates life and brings to life, without the Spirit's constant presence, life ceased to exist. And so we recognize not only is the Spirit as the giver of life, but the one who sustains life. And this continued, another place to see this would be in Psalm 104. I'm going to start at uh, verse 26, but we're going to go down to verse 30. Verse 26 um, says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The spirit is involved. So if you caught those last lights, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You know, that echo of what's said in Job there. And then when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. In other words, the spirit is involved in ongoing creation. Not just in the life on page one of the Bible. But each new life that comes into existence, each new creature that comes in is imbued with the spirit the Spirit gives it life, and when the Spirit withdraws that life, it's taken away, and it dies. And so, there's a couple things that go on here, and so I want us to think about some of the implications of that. If the Spirit is the giver and the sustainer of life, what do I do with that? If it's like, okay, that's nice to do, can I just, you know, you know make a nice little poster, hang it up on your wall, and say, oh, the Holy Spirit is the, the giver and sustainer of life. And we file it away up in the knowledge box. Or we forget it by Monday. We say, but what do we do with this? Well, one of the implications is, if the earth is created and sustained by the Spirit, if all of the living things is then, 
then we grieve the Spirit with our care of creation. In other words, how we care for the living creatures around us, how we care for the earth and all that is in it, makes a difference to God. I mean, I know this coming up in a couple of weeks is Earth Day, and we can see that as like this, you know, celebration where we go out and we would, we generally refer to like people. I know when I was, I don't know if they use that um, terminology. Sometimes people talk about tree huggers, right? So there's tree huggers, you know, they're like, oh, these, they just love the people of God, we, the church, should be at the front of the line. Not necessarily that you need to go out and hug trees, but we need to be caring for the earth and all that's in it. Caring for this creation that God is, if God is the one who, if the spirit gives and sustains life, then don't we have a responsibility to care for it? To be stewards of Eden, as one author puts it. And there are many different ways we can do it. We can think about the way that we live. We can become informed on how we steward the resources. We can think about the ways we can reduce and reuse and recycle. We can limit the way we operate. I've got an entire book on my desk um, called Stewards of Eden. An uh, Old Testament professor named Sandra Richter talks about it. And she, it's, it's actually it's disturbing to read the book because she talks about many of the practices that we are participants in that we're unaware of. I was rereading um, part of one of the chapters last night, and one of the things is like I read it, and I'm like, I'm not sure I want to ever eat meat again. When you realize all that goes into producing meat and the conditions that chickens and pigs and cows live in so that we can enjoy our bacon and eggs. And these are all creatures to whom the Spirit breathed life into. Now, I'm not saying you all have to become vegans. (laughs) But we need to be conscious of all the choices that we make and how the Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life and the sustainer of life and how we care for the creation around us. Second thing I want to do is, is take it from a different perspective, is to think for the ways in which we can experience what I would maybe call echoes of the Spirit in creation. This isn't about worshiping the creation, and that's, the Bible is absolutely clear. We are called not to worship the creation. No created thing. We worship the Creator and the Creator alone. But if the Creator, if the Spirit is the giver and sustainer of life, I want to suggest to you that we can see echoes, that we can see reflections of the Spirit in creation. We've come out of a long winter. The flowers are starting to come out. The weather's starting to get warmer. And what I would invite you to do is to take some time to go out and to enjoy and to experience the creation and allow it to reflect back to you some of who the Spirit is. And a couple suggestions on doing that. First is it requires slowing down. It requires stopping and slowing down and just observing. A few years ago, and I can't remember this, somebody, one writer talked about this idea of what they called crabgrass contemplation. And the idea was you just, you go somewhere and you find somewhere, it's nice to find someplace beautiful, but it can be anywhere in creation. Just stop, take some breaths. Ask God to speak to you. 
And then sit, watch, listen, feel, and notice what's going on in creation all around you, where the Spirit is there. And St. Francis of Assisi talked about this, and he said, we can even make connections with this. So when we're walking outside in creation, there's echoes of the Spirit. We walk outside, and I have a couple of friends who they like to collect rocks. You know, they've, they've go, um, they go everywhere, and I remember one of my friends, uh, when I was in the Army, he had this, on his, above his kitchen sink, he had this shelf and there were probably 40 or 50 rocks on it, all little different sizes. And stuff. But what was amazing was he could grab a rock off the shelf and say, oh, I picked this one up when I was in um, Grand Teton Park. Oh, and I grabbed this one when I was visiting my grandpa down in Tennessee. And I, gra- and I was like, they're rocks. I, don't, I mean, I can't tell the difference between them. I mean, I have a pile of rocks and I keep thinking like, I don't remember where I got any of these. But that was a detour, sorry. Rocks. Rocks are this thing where, because the Bible talks about what? God is our rock and a fortress. So it may be that while you're sitting there admiring creation, you notice a rock. And what the Spirit does is a reminder to you of saying, this is what God is like. As you're sitting there, maybe you're by the beach and you're, you're watching the waves wash up and you see that break wall that's preventing the sand from dumping into the water and there's these rocks and it's sitting there. And it's like the story that Jesus told of a man who built his house on sand and a man who built his house on rock. And so we can observe in creation and we can see these things. Jesus used this. He said, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the sky. Maybe as we run the water and we dip the water in our hands, we're reminded of the waters of baptism. But the Spirit can become visible to us, seen in creation. And so I want to conclude with a couple of observations from two different writers. One is a man named Wendell Berry. Uh, Wendell Berry is a, a poet. And this poem is from his collection called The Timbered Choir. And Wendell Berry writes a lot about creation. I think that's like almost all of his poems, all of his writing. And this is one of his poems, or well, this is a part of one of his poems from the Denver Tech Choir. And he says this, he says, to rest, go to the woods where what's made is made without your thought or work. Sit down, begin the wait for small trees to grow big, feeding on earth and light. Their good result is song the winds must bring, that trees must wait to sing and sing longer than you can wait. Soon you must go. The trees, your seniors, standing thus acknowledged in your eyes, stand as your praise and prayer. Your rest is in this praise of what you cannot do, of what you cannot be, and what you cannot do. So Wendell Berry goes and he sees the trees and he's reminded that the trees grow They're much older than us, and you didn't do anything to make those trees grow. And so it might be that we go into creation and we see the trees and we see the life that's going on, and we're reminded that there is a lot that happens that we have no control over. In fact, that's what we're going to celebrate in just a few moments when we sit at the Lord's table, that we did nothing to save ourselves. Just as Wendell Berry stood among the timbered choir of the trees and said, 
The trees grew and I did nothing for that. We come to a communion table and we recognize that Jesus died and offers us salvation and we did nothing for that. So it might be that you go into creation and you're reminded that all that goes on without us and that God is the one who gives life. Then we might go and he says, to rest, to go to the woods where what's made is made without your thought or work. That's the way of God, isn't it? That God does so much. In the, he doesn't require anything of us. So it might be that when you observe creation, that's what you see. Second writer is a writer, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote around the turn of the century. And I'm sure I've used part of this quote before, but I want to read you a little longer section of it. And what G.K. Chesterton, and he wrote um, end of the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. So the sentences are much longer and the words are much bigger than we're used to. So I'm going to try and read a little slow, but he says, he's talking about wonder and he's talking about science and how we, we begin to believe that everything, we can break things down into a mechanism of how things work. We watch an apple fall. We say, well, that's all gravity. Gravity gravity's there and the, fall, the apple falls to the ground. And he'd be, part of his question is, well, does it have to though? I mean, we see it as just like, that's the way things are. And that's what happens. But is there maybe some magic, something else that's going on. And so he writes this. He said, the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. And he says this, he goes on, he says, the thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they think, want things repeated and unchanged. Can I get an amen to that, right? That's kids, right? They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> he says, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. He says, for grown-up people are not strong enough to... We get bored so easily, don't we? Oh, I've seen that one already. I've seen that. You know, we walk through the trees like another... Like I said... Yeah, I was telling you about that earlier, right? The rocks, not just another rock. Because I'm a grown by I can't exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And so part of what Chesterton is getting at is sometimes the wonder of creation is lost to us, in part because it seems monotonous, it's repetitive. 
And as we grow older, sometimes we lose our sense of wonder. We see trees grow. We see birds flying. Children can sit and watch a butterfly, a bird. And we, we, some of us have that taste of it. I know some of you have bird feeders. And you'll sit and you'll sit in their window and you'll watch the birds outside. And that's that sense of wonder. That that same hummingbird comes every day to that feeder, that sparrow's there, that, that little goldfinch that comes. And we gain a sense of wonder. And that's the spirit calling to us, say, regain that sense of wonder. The sense of wonder in the world is a surprising and amazing place. And that's what happened on Easter Sunday. The people came, the women came first to the tomb and then later the men, and they couldn't figure out because it didn't fit their perspective. It seemed the monotony of life was that people live, they die, they bury, they stay dead. And on Easter Sunday, God said, no, that is not the way of that. There is wonder still in the world and Christ is risen from the dead. I have raised him to new life and there is new life because what? The spirit is at work and the spirit brings life. And so when we go out and we observe creation and we see the wonder of creation, we're reminded ultimately of the wonder of new creation. That the Spirit brings life and one of the things that the Spirit is bringing is new life to us. That where we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God has brought us new life. Where we were formless and void, where we were in a state of tohu wavohu, where we were in darkness and covered in the deep, God's spirit hovered. Jesus came and died and rose from the dead and raised us to new life and brought life where there was none before. And that's the wonder. And a wonder we can experience in God's creation, a wonder we experience when we go to the communion table. And just like God never tires of saying to the Son, do it again. God never tires of calling people out of darkness and into light. Jesus tells the story that says when one sinner repents, he says the angels in heaven celebrate. There's a party. Because there is no end to the wonder of someone becoming a new creation. And so let's celebrate the one who is the spirit, the giver and sustainer of life. He gives life to creation all around us. He's breathed into us the breath of life. But more than that, we celebrate that as people of the risen Lord, he has breathed new life into us. Back at the beginning, we said what? When the Spirit departs, what? We die. But in Jesus Christ, He gives us a Spirit that lives and stays in us, which means what? We live and never die. And so let us be reminded that the one who is the Spirit lives inside of us and gives us new life. May we worship him, the one who is the spirit, who lives 
with God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.